Uh, if you have a Bible, you can open it to Matthew chapter 28. We, of course, have finished up our readings in the Gospels. Um, if you've been doing the, the church Bible reading plan with us, and I, I hope you are. If not, I hope you're reading the Bible at some point in time, uh, even if you're not reading the plan with us. But if you are reading with us, uh, we finished up the Gospels. We have also uh, journeyed a little bit into Acts now. And so I'm kind of I'm kind of reaching back a little bit on a topic that we haven't uh, discussed in our time in here together on Wednesday nights. And I, I want to give you a little, uh, I guess, just confession. Uh, I, I really love the book of Acts, and we'll spend some time there um, over the next couple of weeks. But if you remember this, when I, when I first got here, the very first thing that we walked through was Acts 1 through 10. And so when I was looking at the reading plan uh, for this particular week, I was like, I have absolutely preached every word from Acts chapters 1 through Acts chapters 10. And so I thought, they're just going to hear the same thing again if I'm not careful. And so I thought maybe more appropriately tonight would be kind of fun to just kind of reach back, um, even though we kind of finished the Gospels toward the, the middle of last week. And uh, of course, we've, we've, been in, uh, we've been in Acts I thought it would still be kind of fun for us to look back, not not just at Matthew 28, but just the idea of Jesus's commissioning of his disciples in all of the gospel accounts. And even also um, his statement in Acts chapter one, where he gives another commissioning statement to his disciples. So anyway, we're going to kind of camp out a little bit um, in Matthew uh, chapter number 28 um, and look at the, the great commission tonight. I read a story. I've shared it with some of you. Um, in this room, but it's still one of the most interesting stories that I've ever read. Um, it's about a, a, uh, a tourist attraction that is in the suburbs of San Jose, California. It's an estate that was built by the heir of the Winchester Rifle Fortune. In 1884, a wealthy widow named Sarah L. Winchester began a 38-year construction project guided uh, by just random kind of fear and, and, and stu- uh, superstitions. Evidently, Miss Winchester was convinced by a medium that continuous building would appease the evil spirits of those killed by the famous gun that won the West and help her to attain eternal life. And so Sarah kept carpenters, hammers pounding 24 hours a day. The Victorian mansion came to be Winchester Mystery House. Has anybody ever seen this in person? I just I'm always curious when I think about this particular illustration in case somebody has actually been there. You might have a little bit more of an account. But anyway, Sarah keeps the the carpenters going hours a day. Um, The mystery house, Winchester Mystery House is what it's known for currently. Now, even though it was it has one hundred and sixty rooms, three elevators, 40 staircases and 47 fireplaces, Its size alone does not account for the architectural marvel. What does is the bizarre purposelessness of the design. Stairs lead into the ceiling. Windows decorate the floor. Doors open into blank walls. Random features reflect the excessive creativity, energy, and expense from exquisite hand-inlaid parquet floors to Tiffany art glass windows. Busyness, not blueprints, defined its success. Now, the reason why this story is kind of interesting is not only for the tourist attraction that uh, the the Winchester Mystery House is, but it's interesting when someone used this illustration as a comparison 
for what a lot of different churches look like today. And you say, Danny, what do you mean by that? The Winchester Mystery House could be an accurate picture of what the church is like when the church has absence of vision. In other words, there may be lots of activity, but there is little progress or little purpose. There's a verse from the Old Testament. You've probably heard it before or heard it used before. It's a very popular, very famous verse. It's Proverbs 29, 18. Of course, the wisest man who ever lived is writing these things. And he writes these words. Where there is no vision, the people perish. Right? It's a very common verse. It's been used in a lot of different settings. Now, here's what we know. If we're thinking about this verse as a church, and we're thinking about this verse in the context of our own lives and in our community, I would say that all of us would say, Danny, we don't want this. And I would say, I, I agree, this is true, right? We don't want people perishing because we haven't embraced the vision of God for His people. And you say, what might that vision look like? Well, Dawson Trotman wrote a word about Proverbs 29, 18 that I thought was interesting. Here's what he said. He said, vision is getting on your heart what God has on His. That was his description of what vision looks like. It's getting on your heart what God has on His. So Proverbs 29.18, in this context from Dawson Trotman, shows us exactly what God has on His heart. Where there is no vision, the people perish. You say, Danny, what does God have on His heart? God has all people on the face of the planet on His heart. The question for us is, do we? Do we see what God sees? Do we see the people of the world who are in need of a Savior? Is our vision the same as His? I have heard over my lifetime more Boudreaux and Thibodeau jokes than you could possibly imagine. As a matter of fact, I wish I remembered more of them, but I can tell you I don't have to because every time I go to a church, there will be somebody who gives me a book that is Boudreaux and Thibodeau jokes. Now listen, I have no issue with that. My last name is Boudreaux. That makes sense. Um, I have no connection with any awesome Boudreaux. I have no connections with Boudreaux's butt paste. Um, I, I, I don't even really know very many Thibodeaux. I don't have a best friend who was named Thibodeau. So these jokes are not necessarily uh, the, the perfect expression of my life. As a matter of fact, let me just let you in on a secret. I was born in home, Louisiana. I was raised in South Mississippi. So I am as foreign to Southeast Louisiana as you are, other than my name. But I've heard my fair share of jokes. One of the ones that I read that I've always thought was funny was about Thibodeau. Actually, I, I think it originally said Boudreaux, but I wanted Thibodeau to be the butt of the joke and not Boudreaux. So whoever it was, uh, Thibodeau uh, read a story about him putting up his mule for sale one time. It says, a man came by and asked, are there any problems with the mule? And Thibodeau answered, only that he don't look so good. And the man answered, well, I don't really care about that. Does he work hard? Oh, yeah, he work hard. He just don't look so good. So the man bought the mule, and Thibodeau loaded him onto the new owner's trailer. And when the new owner arrived at his farm, he put down the ramp, and he brought the mule off the trailer. The mule immediately ran into a tree then into the side of a barn, 
And the farmer, obviously, was angry. He said, I've been cheated. This mule is blind. So he loads up the mule onto the trailer, and he goes back to Thibodeau, and he yells at him. You misrepresented this mule to me. This mule is blind. You lied to me. Oh, no, Thibodeau replied. I don't lie to you. I told you he don't look so good. <laughs> you say, Danny, that's a goofy uh, story. I, I, I agree. As a matter of fact, most Boudreaux and Thibodeau stories you hear are pretty goofy. But, but here's what I know. Everything, friends, depends on how good we look, how well we see. And it seems like over the years, the church hasn't been seeing so good as God wants them to be seeing. One of my favorite quotes is by one of my favorite authors on disciple-making. His name is Greg Ogden. He wrote these words. He said, unless we see the gap between current reality and our desired destination, we won't be able to assess what it will take to get there. The repeated lament I hear is that we are much better at conversion than we are at transformation of these converts into disciples of Jesus. Now, I've read tons of guys like Greg Ogden. It could be Greg. It could be Dan Spader. It could be uh, Putman. It could be Mike Breen. It could be Robbie Gallaty. I mean, I could list you lots of different authors who have written on the topic of disciple making. As a matter of fact, I'm not bragging. I'm just letting you know because school's about to start again. I just got an email. But before I moved here, I was required to take a year off from my doctoral program uh, because when you transition to a new church and you go to New Orleans Seminary, they require in your D-man to take a year off so that you can learn your new context before you finish your project. So it's just a stipulation. By the way, that year has come to an end for me, sadly. And so now I'm forced to go back. But... In the project phase of my doctoral ministry degree, my entire emphasis has been on disciple making. That's what I want to do my project in. That's what I want to see happen at this church and our community. That's what I want to put together as a strategy here for us. Like That's what I feel like God has placed in my life and called me to do. And as a matter of fact, I don't think it's just me. I think it's every uh, disciple of Jesus. He is begging to make more disciples. And as I have read and I have read, I could unload so much different content and hundreds of books that my eyes and my brain have processed. And here's what I can tell you over and over again. It's not that we don't know this. It's that for some reason, we are oftentimes unwilling to fix it. Oftentimes, we just don't see as God sees. Now, maybe you're thinking, because I've been here too, especially when I started this process personally, Danny, there are a lot of churches out there that probably are missing it, but not us. We're doing it right. And here's what I would say. Maybe you're right. I'm not saying we get everything wrong. I think we do a lot of really good things. But let me give you just a, a small glimpse into the church of today. Here's a, a really interesting thing that I'll just throw on the screen for you. This is a really interesting study that happened not too terribly long ago. In 1996, over 5 million people attended a worship service at a Southern Baptist church. From 1997, by the way, we're a Southern Baptist church, so that's why it's relevant to us. From 1997 to 2016, roughly 20 years, Southern Baptist churches, about 46,000 churches, baptized 7 million people. Now that's, that's good, right? 
Taking into account mortality rate and family transitions, you would think the SBC would have grown to about 8 or 9 million. Now, honestly, I think it would be higher, but they're being conservative, all right? They were at 5, they baptized 7, take a little bit out for just normal life. Let's say we're at 9 million. But what's interesting is the Southern Baptist Convention actually dropped by 24,000 in weekly attendance. So here's the question for churches of today. Where did 7 million people go? They got baptized. <laughs> what happened to them? Churchleadership.org has some really interesting uh, stats as well. I'll just throw them up here for you too, just so that you can see them. Every year, this number has increased, by the way, 4,000 plus churches closed their doors compared to just over 1,000 new church starts. I don't know if you can do the math, but that's not good. Every year, 2.7 million church members fall into inactivity. Also, not good. From 1990 to 2000, the combined membership of all Protestant denominations in the U.S. declined by almost 5 million members, while the U.S. population increased by 24 million. Half of all the churches in the U.S. have not added any new members to their ranks in the last two years. I would dare say that number has grown. They say, Danny, why are you showing us all of these different stats? Is this happening because churches have lost their passion and love for Jesus? Here's what I would say to you, friends. I don't think so. Danny, do you think this is happening because churches are no longer paying staff members? Well, I can attest to you, I get a check every single week. Actually, it's every two weeks, but I get it. My bank account doesn't miss it, so I don't think that's the reason. Danny, is this happening because there are less people on the planet? We know that's not the case. Danny, is it happening because God doesn't work like He used to? Absolutely not. I think this is happening because God's people have forgotten the purpose which the church exists for. The last few weeks, we've read each of the Great Commission statements from the Gospel accounts and from Acts. Let me read them to you again just briefly. This one's from Mark chapter 16, verse 15. And he said to them, talking about Jesus, Go into all the world and proclaim the Gospel to the whole creation. That's how Jesus put it according to Mark. Luke put it like this in chapter 24, verses 45 through 48. Then he opened their minds, once again talking about Jesus and his disciples, to understand the Scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. This is Luke's understanding of Jesus commissioning of his disciples. Here's John's, John chapter 20, verse 21. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Here's the one from Acts chapter 1 that we read most recently. It's verse number 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of of the earth, but my favorite and most popular has been made known by Matthew in chapter number 28. So if you have your Bible, look at verse 16 
let's walk through a couple of important pieces to the Great Commission. Matthew 28, verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Now I want to pause here. We've read all this, but I want to recap for a moment. This point in time, Jesus has died on the cross. He's been buried in a tomb. It's been several days by this point when the disciples, including more than simply the 11 selected by Jesus, have come to the tomb and found that Jesus' body was no longer there. As a matter of fact, Matthew's account only describes a group of ladies going to the tomb to hear from an angel that Jesus is no longer there. Now, I want to make a little side note here because I am always amazed at the obedience and the way in which God uses women in the Bible. Now, I know some of you may differ from my own passionate approach to women in ministry, and we don't have to get into that discussion. But I will say this. I am always amazed at the impact of women in the Gospels. Matter of fact, I just saw a Facebook post the other day from a friend of mine, and and he's not wrong on what he put, but he talked about all the volunteers in his church, all the people who are leading, the first ones who are there to do something with their notebooks out and their pens in hand, and they're taking notes and they're nodding their heads. He said, it's always the women. And he said, men, we got to step up and be the leaders that God's called us to be. Now listen, I agree with that, men. We need to stand up and be the leaders that we need to be. But here's where I disagree. It's not a new thing that women are in love with Jesus. This has always been the case in the Bible. As a matter of fact, if you look at the last moments of Jesus, you find more women supporting him than even his own 11 disciples. Always blown away by the women of the Bible. Here's what happens. That was a side note. I apologize. Matthew 28, verses 5 through 10. Here's what took place. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and they worshipped him. And then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. Now Danny, why are you talking about that? Because Matthew 28, 16 is that moment. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When did Jesus direct them? He did it through this group of women who he sent to tell them after the resurrection, go find my brothers, get them to Galilee. This is where I will meet them. And so here they are in Galilee just as Jesus Wanted. Verse 17, and when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Now what's interesting is, is that the women who encounter Jesus as they're headed toward Galilee, what do they do? They take hold of his feet and they worship him. When the disciples see Jesus, although the, some doubted, which is always fascinating to me, they saw him and they worshipped him. They respond to Jesus just as the women before them They respond to Jesus just as I, just as you, should respond 
to Jesus. Now, I am blown away in this moment that Jesus is there. They're seeing him. I don't know how you can see him and still doubt that it's him. Now, I give him a little bit of credit because if I just saw someone die and be buried and it's been multiple days, I too might see you and go, I didn't really see what I think I just saw, right? And so maybe that's what's happening. Nonetheless, they doubt that it's him, even in the moment while so many others are worshiping him. And though I'm blown away by this moment of doubt, I can truly tell you that I've had plenty of times in my own life where Jesus has come through for me and still I doubt him at the next turn. And so I think this is a similar moment that all of us kind of have to wrestle with. But what Jesus is about to say next in Matthew 28 is the foundation of why the church exists. I love what happens next. Look at verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Can I show you the first foundational piece to why the church exists, to what Jesus shares about the church? The first foundational piece is His people. The church cannot exist without His people. And Jesus came and said to them, right? Notice that Jesus was talking to all of his disciples who were present with him before he left earth. Now, many different people think that this is just the 11 disciples that were there with him and nobody else. However, I truly believe that it was the 11 who had to travel from Jerusalem to Galilee along with others who had to travel from Jerusalem to Galilee. But there were already disciples who were in Galilee. And you say, Danny, why do you think this? Well, because over the course of 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension, Jesus appeared to his disciples about 10 times. Sometimes this was to individual disciples. Other times this was to groups of disciples. As a matter of fact, the apostle Paul would later reflect on what happened in the days of Jesus before he left the earth. And he writes these words in 1 Corinthians 15, 6. He said, then he appeared talking about Jesus to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. You say, Danny, why do you care if it was more than just the 11 disciples? Well, the reason why I care is because these words in Matthew 28 are to all followers of Christ, not just the original 12. What that means is Jesus' words for the Great Commission in Matthew 28 Though we may think, well, that was just for the apostles. And yes, it was for the apostles. But it was for every disciple who was there in that moment and every disciple who would come after in which Jesus would now commission to, as his followers, to be disciples who make disciples. I read a story, it started like this. Once upon a time, an old man purchased a long-neglected piece of property. It was rough and ugly, littered with weeds and thorns. On the property was a tiny rock house, broken, sagging, cracking, and leaking. The old man worked on the property for five long years, and under his loving care, it became a show place. The garden was magnificent. The tiny house was cheery and inviting. People visited to relax in the garden, enjoy the sparkling pools, gaze upon the beautiful flower beds, and rest for a while in the comfort of the little house. One day a friend who hadn't seen the old man in many years came by for a visit. 
He walked around the property absolutely amazed. This is beautiful. Absolutely magnificent. Simply fantastic. Isn't it marvelous to view the handiwork of God? Man was a little aggravated at this statement. And he said, you should have seen it when God worked it alone. It's an interesting thought process, right? Could God have done anything He wanted to the garden? Absolutely. We know that God can work it alone. But He chooses to work through us. This is why we find countless people throughout Scripture being used by God for His purposes. He could do it alone, but He chooses not to. They don't call it the great commission for nothing. (laughs) However, in churches today, I feel like we have failed to grasp this concept. We bought into the idea that making disciples is only for the hired staff or for super Christians. But Jesus gave this command to all of his followers. I love how James Stewart put it. He said, the real problem of Christianity is not atheism or skepticism, but the non-witnessing, non-productive Christian trying to smuggle his own soul into heaven alone. Isn't this a sad reality when we forget that one of the greatest foundations of the church is God's people? Isn't it a sad reality when everything just becomes about us and we're no longer concerned about the mission or the vision which God had in the first place, which, by the way, was His people perishing? Did He want that to happen? Of course not. Danny, how do we know? Jesus. Why would we think our mission would be any different? Let me show you another foundation. His power, right? Obviously, the church is not built on you and me. (laughs) Though He chooses to work through us, we cannot do it apart from Him. This is why He says in verse 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, I want you to notice that Jesus is the one who is supreme over all. He has all authority. He is Lord. He is in charge, and we exist for His glory. There is no doubt in my mind that everything exists for the glory of God, and this certainly includes us. It's not just that He wanted the beautiful trees to bring Him glory. It's not just that creation shouts praise to His name. It's not just that the infiniteness of the universe is to His glory. You and I exist for His glory. Isaiah 43.7 puts it like this, Everyone who is called by My name, whom I created for My glory, whom I formed and made. We are to declare His glory. Psalm 96.3 Declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous works among all the peoples. Everything we do should point to God's glory. 1 Corinthians 10.31 So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. We must reflect His glory. 2 Corinthians 3.18 And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Our very salvation is to the praise of His glory. Ephesians 1.12 So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. 1 Peter 4.11 Whoever speaks 
as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that everything in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The question is not about His glory. We know that everything exists to bring glory to God. The question becomes, how does the church exist to bring Him glory? Also, I want you to notice this. Jesus has all authority to do what He is telling them to do. Now think about this truth for just a second. God gives Jesus all authority in heaven and on earth to accomplish His will. You know what that means? It means that whatever Jesus says and does is going to be accomplished. Also, it does something else. It reveals that the way in which he decided to do it will be successful. Now let that settle in for a moment because listen, he chooses to accomplish God's purposes through you and through me. And it's already been told that he has all the authority and the power belongs to him and the glory is his and God's will will be done through him. And if he has decided that that will will happen through you and me and he has the authority to do it, and wow, that changes a lot of things in my life and yours. As a matter of fact, we read it already, but this is why Acts 1.8 is so powerful. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Who's going to receive power? You are. I am. Because of me? No, no, no. Because of the Holy Spirit. Let me tell you something, friends. The Holy Spirit doesn't need you. He's got the power on His own. But He chooses to fill you with it. Why? So that... You can be His witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He has all power to accomplish His task and He decides to do it through His disciples, through you and through me. His power is beautiful. Let me show you this next foundational piece. His plan. Man, Danny, why, why does the church exist? Oh, it exists so that the power of God could fill His people to accomplish His plan. You say, Danny, what is that plan? Well, look at verse 19. So clear. I don't know why we miss it so much. It's not because it's not clear. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. This is His plan. You say, what is it? Make disciples of all nations. This is where we find the first command in all of the Great Commission. There is only one commission, and this is it. Make disciples. You say, Danny, what do you mean? Jesus doesn't tell us to make church members. Jesus doesn't tell us to make converts. Friends, Jesus isn't looking for decisions. He's looking for disciples. Mike Breen puts it beautifully when he wrote these words. Disciples are the only thing Jesus cares about. And it's the only number Jesus is counting. Not our attendance or budget or buildings. He wants to know if we are making 
disciples. Now listen, I want you to see this picture because Jesus shows it so clearly in the four books that we just read together in our Bible reading plan. He pours his life into a few disciples and he taught them to make other disciples. As a matter of fact, 17 times we find Jesus with the masses, with large crowds, and it is beautiful moments. 17 times we find this. But 46 times we see him with his disciples, just that small group that he is equipping to send out to reach the masses. Matter of fact, within two years of Pentecost, they had filled Jerusalem with Jesus' teachings. We find this in our readings from Acts chapter 5. Within four and a half years, they had planted multiplying churches and equipped multiplying disciples. We find this by Acts chapter 9. Within 18 years, it was said of them that they turned the world upside down. We find this when we get to Acts chapter 17. And after 28 years, it was said that the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world. We find this in Colossians chapter number 1. I don't know about you, friends, but here's what I know. Maybe Satan's greatest accomplishment was making sure that disciples of Jesus don't make more disciples of Jesus. Of all the things that our church stands for, and all churches stand for, are we known for making disciples? Listen, there's nothing wrong with being known for mission work or, or a friendly atmosphere or a great youth program or, or the best services or, or anything else that you can possibly think of. However, the only thing that Jesus commissions the church to do is make disciples. The question is, are we? Steve Murrell, you may not know him. He's a good old Mississippi boy who went to Mississippi State University. Don't hold that against him. Steve Murrell is one of my most favorite guys to read on disciple making because he's from the same neck of the woods as I am. And he went on a trip to the Philippines and 40-something years later, he still hasn't been home. I mean, he's been home. But home now is the Philippines. As a matter of fact, I think they're up to like reaching over 100,000 people now with over 80 locations across 100 different continents. I don't even know how that's possible. He wrote these words. He said, Jesus told his followers that he would build his church. The one of the last things he told them to do was make disciples. It's that simple. We make disciples and he builds the church. We do not build the church and he does not make disciples. There's a difference. We have to ask ourselves, are we making disciples? Jesus hasn't called his disciples to build his church. He will build his church. The only commission that he gives his disciples is to make disciples. Let me give you this a little bit more plain. This is how Mike Breen puts it. If you make disciples, you always get the church. But if you make a church, you rarely get disciples. <laughs> that stings a little bit, doesn't it? I think the question we have to ask ourselves, each of us personally, am I trying to make a better church? Not that that's bad. But making a better church will not necessarily mean better disciples. But am I trying to make disciples? Because if I am, then there will be a better church. Don't get them mixed up. How many years have went by that what we've tried to do is make our church seem nicer? And oftentimes it has been at the sake of making disciples. Side note, I don't want you to lose sight of the phrase, of 
all nations. God isn't just desiring to reach Saltillo. He desires to reach the world. How are we making disciples here and to the ends of the earth? I don't know if you know this, but Jesus never came to the U.S. The only reason the U.S. knows about Jesus is because someone brought Him here. (laughs) How beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. Robert E. Coleman, very famous writer on evangelism and discipleship, wrote these words. This is a powerful statement, by the way. My conviction is is that if making disciples of all nations is not the heartbeat of our life, something is wrong. Either with our understanding of Christ's church or our willingness to walk in His ways. Ouch! Listen, this is Jesus' plan. It's not mine. There's really only one truth that needs to be wrestled with, and it's this one. Either churches completely misunderstand what Jesus was teaching, or we are unwilling to do what He said. Let me put this in plain English. Either we read the Great Commission, and we understand He wants us to make disciples. Either we understand it, and we're just unwilling to do it, or we legitimately don't understand it. But here's the truth. It has to be one or the other. And here's what I will say, friends. I I know for me, I can only speak for me, but I know that about 30 years of my measly 35 years of existence, has been mostly knowing about what to do, but being unwilling to do it. I don't know about you, friends. I'm just talking about me personally. I can't make that excuse anymore. Jesus has commissioned His disciples to make disciples. This is His plan, not mine. The question is, are we doing it? Let me show you this. His plan happens through a couple of different things. It happens through going. This is why he made the statement, go, therefore. Now, though you may have heard this, the phrase go, therefore, isn't a command. It simply means as you are going, or simply put, as you go about a typical day. Now, why would Jesus command us to do something that each of us will inevitably do on our own? The issue isn't that the church would get out into the community. The church is out in the community because you are there every single day. That's not the issue. The issue is that while the church is out in the community, Is it leading people to Jesus? Herb Hodges wrote this. He said, two of the greatest of gospel words are come and go. Once we have come to Christ, we are to go and tell all men what we have found in Him. However, I don't know about you, but for me, and once again, I can only speak about me. It seems as though we have come to Jesus and then sit on a pew and stay there. The going part doesn't happen as easily. If I can attend church activities, if I can be a good person in my neighborhood, then I've had a successful day. But is there actually more? Matter of fact, the Holy Spirit cannot save saints and seats, yet the church is full of both. I know, that stings a little bit. It does me too. This is why Jesus made the commission. You know what He knew? He knew we would be prone to sit there. By the way, you know what happened to the apostles in the beginning of Acts? They were prone to sit there. You know what happened? The Holy Spirit had to move them out and say, don't forget I said go to the nations. 
I hope it doesn't take us what it took them. His plan happens through going. Let me show you this too, though. His plan happens through giving. Now, I'm not talking about your money, although that too. (laughs) What I'm talking about is the phrase that Jesus uses when he says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Once we've engaged our communities with the gospel, we pray they will give their lives to Jesus. This is the giving. The giving is not, are you giving enough tithes and offerings to the church? I'm not asking that question, nor do I care. That's between you and God. It's not, are you giving of your gifts and your talents and your abilities? I pray you are, but that's not the discussion. Jesus is talking about people giving their lives to him. They must first die to themselves so that Jesus can live through them. This is what baptism means. This is why Jesus makes this statement. The only way someone is baptized is when they are identified with the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. You say, Danny, what do you mean? That's what baptism is a picture of. You start as yourself. You are buried like Jesus into the water. You come out like His resurrection. No longer you, but Him, so that He can live through you. Jesus is saying, I want you to go, and as you go, I want you to help people give their lives, submit and surrender everything to Me. I want you to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Let me show you this one too, though. His plan happens through growing. This is a part that I think maybe we forget about sometimes, or at least I know I've done a poor job of in my lifetime. He says the phrase, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Jesus wanted his disciples to teach others to obey all that he taught them. They were to take those three or so years of walking with Jesus and they were to invest it back in others. Now when we think about disciple making, we tend to think about seeing someone get saved. And listen, that is the first step. We want to see people give their lives to Jesus. This is why he says, go and baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But by the way, listen, it doesn't end there. That's not the end. We fail to realize that Jesus wanted more than a decision. The disciple-making process was not complete until the disciple could make more disciples. There is plenty of growth still to happen after someone gives their life to Jesus. This is not the end, but the beginning. Everything that Jesus taught them and commanded them was to be imparted to the next generation of Christ followers. There wasn't a a curriculum to complete or, or a church activity to attend. Becoming a disciple of Jesus was a lifestyle of becoming more like him. And so the question that I'm left with is how are we doing this? How are how is our church doing this? How are we personally doing this? How are you going to tell people to give their lives to Jesus and help them grow to the point of going Jesus defined this as his plan for reaching the nations. How are you living out that plan? How are you following following what he commanded us to do? But I want to show you this last one. Don't miss this, right? It's another foundational piece. That is his promise. You say, Danny, what do you mean? It's at the very end of verse 20. And behold, of course, this is Jesus still speaking. I am with you always to the end of the age. The word translated behold is an interesting word. In the Greek, it is also a command. As a matter of fact, you may have heard there's only one command in the Great Commission, but there are in fact two. There is make disciples, and there is this word behold. Some translations translate this word as lo. Anybody got a Bible in here that says lo, I am with you always? Yeah. 
kind of a weird word to put there, right? It's hard for translators to figure out how they want to depict this command from Jesus. The best way I've heard this illustrated was like this. The low always follows the go. In other words, this is a promise from Jesus that hinges on His words before this. Matter of fact, two different guys talk about this that I think is really interesting. Herb Hodges wrote, You cannot validly claim the promise unless you follow the plan. We will never have New Testament power until we follow New Testament patterns. Jesus is with us to the end of this age, yet is He saying that He is with us as we make disciples, and when we don't, is He still going to be with us? Coleman put it like this, This is a present blessing experienced in the process of making disciples. Okay, so what? Danny, got you. Alright, let, let me leave you this, this statement from C.S. Lewis. The church exists for nothing else but to draw men into Christ to make them little Christ. If they are not doing that, all the cathedrals, clergy, missions, sermon, even the Bible itself are simply a waste of time. God became man for no other purpose. It is even doubtful, you know, whether the whole universe was created for any other purpose. Bold statement from Lewis, isn't it? What is he trying to tell us? He's trying to say that the church exists to make disciples. Is this our goal? If not, then maybe we've missed what Jesus told us to do a long, long time ago. So listen, I know those are difficult words. Say, Danny, why are you throwing all that at us? Here's why. Because I pray and I hope and I beg that your heart as a follower of Jesus is stirred by this challenge. I pray, I hope, I beg that your heart is stirred to do more than just fill a building. Your heart is stirred to live out your purpose as His disciple to make more disciples. You say, Danny, how do I do it? As you go, will you help people give their lives to Jesus and help them grow to be disciples who make disciples? Will you share your story and be His witnesses? Will you lead them to what a relationship with Jesus looks like? You say, Danny, I don't know how to do that. You've been living it. Just give them what you got. <laughs> yeah, I don't know everything in the Bible. You don't have to. Matter of fact, I love how Steve Murrell puts it in his book, Wiki Church. He talks about in the Philippines how they start new churches, how they send out disciple makers. I love, I love his processing because I know as a church leader, I'm always thinking, well, I don't, I don't know if Donald knows enough yet, so I don't know if I need to let him out of the box. Like he needs, I got to try to get him enough and fix him. I love what Steve said. Steve said he had a guy one time that read the Gospel of Matthew. He got saved, read the Gospel of Matthew. He started talking to Steve. You know, he's like, Pastor, what do I need to do next? And he said, well, you need to go share that with somebody else. You need to help somebody else be a disciple. And he goes, Pastor, I don't know enough. I haven't been doing this very long. And Steve goes, hey, you got a neighbor who doesn't know Jesus, right? And he goes, yeah, yeah. He said, have you been doing it longer than him? He goes, yeah, I guess so. 
And he says, well, do you, does he know anything about the Bible? And he's like, no, he doesn't know much about the Bible. I said, well, what about you? And he's like, well, I only know Matthew. He goes, well, you know what? You know a whole lot more than that guy. So take what you know and go share it with that guy. He said the moment they give their life to Jesus, they're ready to be missionaries. Not because they got all the information that they need. No, no. It's because they got the power of Jesus and the plan of Jesus and the promise of Jesus as the people of Jesus. To make disciples who make disciples. Listen, there's a lot more plans to come. There's a lot more ways that we can do this better as a church. There's a lot more ways that we can be equipped and start serving and using our gifts. Absolutely. But can I tell you something? If you say, Danny, I'm just not ready. Wherever you are, you've got somebody in your life who hasn't got there yet. So you know what? You help them get there. And you know what? There's somebody in here that's gotten a little bit further than you. You know what they need to do? They need to help you get to where they are. And there's somebody else that's a little bit further than them, and they need to help them get to where they are. And this is what it looks like to start living on mission, life on life, helping people grow and become more like Jesus. The mission is clear, and it is great. The question is not, do we know it or understand it? The question is, are we willing to do it? 